What is the nature of physical reality? Well, first of all, I'm not really sure that we know. We have a bunch of placeholder names for things that we observe, like things like matter and energy and stuff like this, atoms. I'm not really sure deep down what that stuff is. What does it mean to be alive? We can keep all that useful energy, use it to keep our own internal entropy low at the expense of our environment. That's what life does. And that's what Schrodinger says is the thing that makes something life. Anything that does that is life, and anything that's life is doing that. How does a physicist understand energy? I just think of it now as a bookkeeping device. And a lot of physics really is a bookkeeping device. It doesn't mean it's not describing something real, but deep down that word, I don't know... There's any sentence that defines it better than it's a way we think about stuff that is useful. This week, physicist, writer, and podcast host Dan Hooper on Nine Questions with Eric Oliver. Good morning, Dre. Tell me, what do you know about the nature of the universe? Wow, small question. Um, yeah. You well, know what? I'm I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna make I'm gonna be Jon Snow. I know nothing. Uh huh. Um. Other than at some point there was the Big Bang and then there were particles and then here we are now. Yeah. I mean, I think that's how most of us understand it. And Right. So I was very curious to find out and talk to somebody who knows a little bit more than that. Yes. Dan Hooper. Dan Hooper does. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about Dan? Yeah. Dan Hooper is a cosmologist and particle physicist specializing in areas of dark matter, cosmic rays, and neutrino astrophysics. He is a senior scientist at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory and professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Chicago, where our friend Eric works. Hey, how about that? (laughs) Dan is the author of several books, including Dark Cosmos, Nature's Blueprint, and At the Edge of Our Time. He is also the co-host of Why This Universe on the Chicago Podcast Network, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's one of our sister podcasts. I was really excited to talk to Dan. I'm a big fan of his podcast. I really like physics, and I've been thinking a lot about physics in respect to writing this book on how to know yourself, Mm -hmm. and particularly this question about what is energy and how we understand energy. And I was just thrilled to have an opportunity to talk to somebody who's one of the world's leading physicists um, about this. And the other great thing about Dan is not only is he just genius smart in physics, he's a really interesting guy. He comes from rural Minnesota, um, kind of grew up uh, in a heavy metal band, was in the military for a while. Um, Yeah, he was a a drill sergeant. He was a drill sergeant and then mm-hmm. went to college after that. And then in college, kind of wandering around, discovered physics. And it turns out is a genius physicist. Um, mm-hmm. So really interesting story, really interesting guy. And as you were saying, he talks at one level that's very deep and then the other level that's very immediate. And so mm-hmm. he's a really interesting person to kind of investigate a lot of these questions with. And I thoroughly enjoyed my interview with him and found it very enlightening. So let's get started. Dan Hooper on Nine Questions. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. We're going to start with question one, which is 
the question I'm very excited to hear your answer to. I mean, the other ones as well, but this <laughs> one's particularly good, um, which is what are you? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, as you know, by having designed the question this way, there are lots of different levels you can ask this question at. I mean, the way I'm not inclined to ask it, answer it is like, well, I'm a human being that studies this and is married to this person and lives at this address. Um, when I think more deep down about this question, well, first of all, I'm not really sure that we know. We have a bunch of placeholder names for things that we observe, like things like matter and energy and stuff like this, atoms. I'm not really sure deep down what that stuff is, but using those placeholders, because that's what we have to work with, that's our, our best working way to think about these things. Um, I'm a big collection of atoms that were assembled in the way they are through a series of cosmic accidents, like, you know, stars forming and exploding and populating the right kinds of atoms in the right kinds of places that form things like our Earth. And then natural selection started to build ever increasingly complicated organic things. And eventually natural selection built things that are like human beings with complicated strands of DNA and cells and systems and whatever. And uh, for reasons that I am entirely mystified by, somehow those complicated collection of things started to become self-aware. I think I'm one of those things, pretty sure. I think you're one of those things. I'm almost as sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is the human condition. And um, I find the nature of consciousness and what it means to be a human being to be one of the most mysterious and important questions in all of philosophy. So this is a question I've been dying to ask a physicist. So okay. I'm, I, I have you captured here, so I get to interrogate you with this. So I think of life in, in the scheme that you just described, that life is something that this, I think this goes back to Schrodinger, which is this idea that life is a energy system that's resisting entropy. Oh, Schrodinger's great book, What is Life? Yeah. I yeah, love yeah, yeah. this book. Yeah, yeah. Best, bet my favorite book in all of biology was written by a physicist. Yeah, I, yeah, maybe yeah, that yeah. exposes something about my biases, but <laughs> definitely is my favorite biology book. Yeah, it's a great book. And what it got me thinking about that is, okay, if life is an energy system resisting entropy, which as far as I know is, I think, the only energy system in the universe that's doing that... Yeah, I think he says that anything that does that is living. Yeah. And therefore, he would call anything that does that life. Life, right. So should we – then Then I, I think about, okay, in a lot of, you know, Eastern contemplative traditions, there's an idea of a life force. You know, Henri Bergson kind of had an idea of a life force. Now, most of these are based in some kind of supernatural idea. But I'm wondering, like, as a physicist, should we count life itself as a kind of force in the same way – you know, it's a it's a way that energy – is organizing itself in the way that other forces are the ways that energy organizes itself. All right. So there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. All right. I have a lot of thoughts. So let me, uh, the first thing I think of when people start talking about this is, uh, stuff I was taught as a young person. So again, rural Minnesota, very traditional, very religious community. And it was often told to me that evolution can't be real because it violates the second law of thermodynamics. What the second law of thermodynamics says, or I came to understand later when I was a physics student says, is that if you take any closed system, the entropy of that system will inevitably increase with time. And it's technically is a statistical law, but any anything with enough particles in it will almost certainly this will happen. So you can think of entropy in a bunch of different ways, but I think of something that is increasing in entropy as either 
increasing in information content or increasing in disorder. Mm-hmm. Either one of those things are good ways to think about it. Like classic examples are, you know, I take a, a wine glass and I hold it up and I drop it and it falls to the ground and it shatters. I just increase the entropy of the system a lot by doing that. Um, there's a lot more ways that you could potentially arrange a bunch of pieces of wine glasses than you could just have one wine glass. So I've increased the amount of information. Also, is I've increased the disorder. And the important thing about the second law is that what you don't see are spontaneous shards of glass jumping together to form wine glasses, but you do find wine glasses spontaneously breaking into pieces. So... If you haven't thought about it very deeply, you would think about evolution and go like, well, okay, random chemicals, organic molecules, whatever, aren't going to spontaneously come together and form complicated living organisms. That would decrease the entropy and therefore in this violation of the second law and therefore it can't happen. That seemed reasonable to me when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18, having heard it for the first time, but it's not reasonable to any real physicist or chemist who's ever thought about this. What the law says is in a closed system, the, sec- the entropy has to increase, and animals and plants and other organisms don't live in closed systems. They keep their entropy low by shedding entropy to their environment. Yeah. So by having something like a star that gives us a bunch of really useful energy, we can keep all that useful energy, use it to keep our own internal entropy low at the expense of our environment. That's what life does. And that's what Schrodinger says is the thing that makes something life. Anything that does that is life and anything that's life is doing that. And I think that's approximately true because you can't have anything. No, I I take it back. I think it's just true. That I think is the best definition of life I've ever heard. And you you can't imagine anything thinking or having metabolism or doing anything remotely complicated that doesn't do the thing Schrodinger is talking about. On this, so this is another question that I've been really trying to ponder, and I've asked some other guests on the podcast, and I'm so I'm very curious to ask you on this kind of line of thought, which is, how do you understand energy? For the longest time, I said that energy is either kinetic energy, so it's a, a sort of thing that moving objects have, or it's the potential to make something move at some later time. And I think that, that will get you pretty far as a definition. But I'm not really sure that I answer the question by saying that. So I'm more inclined these days to say there are a bunch of things we notice in the universe, and we notice that a combination of these things added together in a certain way never seems to change. Whatever it starts at, it, it ends with. And it's, that makes it useful. So it's a conserved quantity. There are a bunch of these, like uh, electric charge is never created or destroyed. It's always the same amount. Uh, momentum's always, the total momentum of a system's always conserved, uh, things like this. And it, it turns out that this thing we call energy is conserved. So it's kind of a technique or a bookkeeping device. Yeah. So the kinds of energy we see in our universe are kinetic energy. So the more faster and heavier something is, the more kinetic energy it carries. There's there's uh, energy stored in mass, so M, M equals mc squared. Uh, equals mc squared is Einstein's relationship between the mass of an object and the potential energy stored in that mass. And then there are all sorts of other kinds of potential energy associated with, like, uh, if I take a spring and I stretch it, it has more energy because that could become kinetic energy down the road, uh, things like this. 
But yeah, I just think of it now as a bookkeeping device. And a lot of physics really is a bookkeeping device. It doesn't mean it's not describing something real. But deep down, that word, I don't know that there's any sentence that defines it better than it's a way we think about stuff that is useful. Well, let let me then ask you, kind of taking us back down to just more your own lived experience, how do you then grapple with the fact that your essence is ineffable? And how do you reconcile yourself to that? Years ago, when I was in grad school, um, I was a practicing Buddhist for like 18 months or something. So not, not a long time Buddhist, but I, I went to this gathering regular uh, on the regular of a, a group of, of Buddhists. And I read a lot and I talked to people about Buddhism and stuff. And, and um, I was always very comfortable with the idea that there isn't a self. Okay. Uh, that's one of the central tenets of Buddhism as I understand it. I certainly saw myself as something very much in flux and I looked at what I was like and what I thought and things only a short few years ago as a very, very different person than I was at that time. And I'm a very different person now. And maybe the fact that I had changed so much so quickly made it easier for me to accept this than some people. But also just like philosophically, I know that atoms are joining and leaving my body on the regular. So it's not like I can't point to some physical collection of objects that define me. If I had to come up with something that explained why this thing is Dan Hooper and this other thing isn't, I, I, I think it would fall apart pretty quickly. I don't think there's any good way to think about that. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that. I'm a, I'm a transitory collection of things. Um, and I don't even know if I am is the right word. There is a transitory collection of things that I am at this very moment. And uh, I, the, that I won't exist in the future. It hasn't existed in the past. This is the only time I'm, I'm the way I am now. And um, I'm, okay. I'm okay with that. I don't, I don't need to be permanent. Um, permanency sounds really intimidating, actually. I'd, I'd much rather be transitory. Yeah. <clears throat> the way I, I describe this in the, in the book that I'm working on is the self is basically all of those processes that are negotiating between our life force and our external reality. Um, and uh, they're processes. And, sure. And, you know, as long as the, my metabolism is going, these processes are happening. And, and that's, that helps sort of deal with the ship of Theseus paradox. Sure. Uh, right. You know, as, as long as those processes are going on, um, it doesn't matter that they're different planks of the boat or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Why don't we move to question two, which is what is your purpose? Again, question you can answer in very different levels. I'm not mm. even going to pretend to, to be interested in the, the lower levels. I'm going to go straight to the big one. Okay. And I just don't think there's any purpose to anything. Um, I think we live in a universe that is void of meaning or purpose, and I'm perfectly okay with that. I wouldn't even know what it would mean for the universe to have purpose. Like, I, I think this is a entire, hu entirely a human construct, something maybe we are genetically predisposed to ask ourselves and maybe crave an answer to. And I certainly feel on a minute-to-minute -minute basis like there's all sorts of meaning and purpose to life. I really care about things. But by acknowledging or coming to the conclusion that there isn't any deep-down meaning or purpose to, to life or the universe or something, it also made me more comfortable with some of my emotions, which seem to conflict with most people's notions of this. So let's say there's a song. I really, I really care about music a lot. I care about it deeply. And let's say there's a song that I think is incredibly moving and somebody else prefers a song, which is in my mind, just, just terrible. 
Okay. My brain responses response to that is not that different from my brain's response to some, somebody doing something immoral. You know, if I see somebody <laughs> kicking their dog, yeah, I'm like, oh, that's just so wrong. Yeah, and and and, and then you tell me your favorite song is, right. and it's like, right. oh, it's like, yeah, yeah. Justin Bieber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's the same, you know, neural <laughs> pathways light up in my brain that right. are that moral repulsion, and that's because neither one matter. But I've decided that both of those things matter a lot to me. I don't want dogs to be kicked, and I don't want people listening to terrible music. And I've just kind of accepted that's the way it is. It's, it's all arbitrary, but human happiness is contingent upon those arbitrary things. And I've decided to value human happiness. Um, I can't deep down explain why we should all value human happiness, uh, but I'm glad most of us do. And I've certainly embraced that. Well, and, and it's not like I decided to fabricate a contingent purpose. I, I have no choice. Like, it, it, as a human being, my, my brain, impo- you know, just constructs purpose everywhere it looks. Yeah. Now, maybe some sort of, you know, stoic in me could, you know, approach that and try to undo that and try to dissect it all and, and refuse to act as if there's any purpose in anything. I don't think that would be very successful and it would be pointless. And after all, if there's no purpose and there's no purpose of avoiding thinking about things purposefully. Yeah. So um, in my case, I find that I enjoy life the most if I figure out what things make me feel purposeful, embrace them, celebrate them, advance them, you know, and whether that be my relationships with human beings, whether that be my relationship with something like music, whether that be with food I might enjoy eating or, or whether it be, you know, any experience I might seek out, all of those things, you know, make my life worth living. And I imagine make a lot of other people's lives worth living. And that's all we've got. That's, that is a good, that's the best reason we have to do anything. All right. Well, let me go to question three, which is who are you really? Well, I've already broken down the, physics underpinning the world and humanity and whatever. So I guess I'll take this as a opportunity to say who, who I am among, among other humans. So I'm, I'm comparing myself to other physicists I know, or other academics I know, or, or other, which are most of the people in my circle tend to be those types. Um, I tend to be uh, a bit more passionate, a little bit more emotional than a lot of them. Um, I get angry and joyful more often and more strongly than a lot of them. I like chaos a lot more than a lot of them. I like to be surprised by things. I would take a new idea over revisiting an old one any day. When I teach classes, I rarely teach the same thing more than once or twice. I, you know, my, my colleagues tend to like find out what the thing they can teach with the least effort is and they teach it 10 times in a row or something. I, I just yeah. would never do that. I have, I'm a social person. I, I'm an extrovert. I learned that very profoundly during COVID. My, my wife's an introvert. So um, we had interesting time trying to navigate uh, the <laughs> lockdown and stuff. Yeah, But I would say that there are a very small number of people in my life who I care like at a highest tier about and that they, they impact my life on a almost everyday basis. And then there are, a, there's a much bigger umbrella of people in, a, in a, the next tier with who I really enjoy spending time with. And I get energy from being around. And, uh, and then 
if you throw me into a random group of fun people I've never known before, I'll, I'll very quickly enjoy myself with them too. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very naturally social is what I would say. Um, I love going to conferences and when the meeting's over finding, you know, six or eight random people and go into a, you know, dinner and a drinks afterwards or something and just telling stories and getting to know each other. I love that sort of thing. Other people are tired at the end of the day and want to go to the room and recharge. I mean, yeah. I'm not that guy. Yeah. One of the things that to me comes out about this question, I'm kind of curious to hear if you have any thoughts about this, which is the question of who you are is really a question of language mm. um, and how we u- utilize language to kind of shape our conceptions. And I was wondering if you thought about, you know, given so much of what you think about is in this world of construction and then finding the appropriate word for a phenomena. Um, and if you've drawn any insights from the role of language, you know, basically in your life or your, your own self processes. Anything we ever say that isn't totally tautological and, and meaningless, or, or at least meaningless in the sense that it doesn't say anything but the world, has to be contingent on language. Um, I'm still wrestling with that, so I might change my mind on that. But right now, that's what I think. So anything I think, not just about me, but anything I think about the world at all, I think has to be you know, embedded in some sort of linguistic structure. And if I happen to have known a different language or use different vocabulary or whatever, I might have different ideas about the world. I, I think there's a certain degree of subjectivity we have to deal with in not just in science, but in my relationships with other human beings, my relationships with art, my way I think about myself, my world, all this stuff, um, language is kind of the foundation. And if I had a different foundation, I would probably reach different conclusions. All right. Why don't we move to question four, which is what are your dreams telling you? To be honest, when I was young, I remembered my dreams all the time. And they, if I were paying attention to them, they probably would have taught me a lot about myself. I very rarely remember a dream anymore. Very, very occasionally. And usually when I do, it's about some very, you know, recent anxiety over something. You know, I recently uh, had a dream where one of my grad students sent me an email with a plot for a paper we're writing. And I only knew it was a dream because I woke up the next day and I couldn't find the email anywhere. (laughs) And it turns out she never sent any such email. But it's a really mundane stuff. Yeah. I don't know that that other than it teaches me that I'm thinking about this stuff a lot and Uh and it bleeds into my subconscious. I I don't know that it teaches me a lot. This hasn't happened to me in a long time, but back when I remembered my dreams more often and and at at this point, you know, I'm a physicist in my mid twenties or something. I would often sit at a table or at a computer and like work on the same problem for like six, eight, 10 hours in a row. And I would oftentimes go to sleep, not understanding the problem and wake up understanding it, Mm -hmm. which I would have told you if it hadn't happened to me, wouldn't be possible, or at least would be very, very unlikely because I didn't think the conscious and the subconscious like could connect in that way. But I'm telling you, I know how to do problems when I wake up that I don't, when I go to bed Yeah, and it's not like I woke up and got up pencil and paper. I just kept rolling over and over and over in my brain until it all clicked and uh, for some reason, that just worked. So I guess 
the moral of the story there is that the, the stuff your brain does that you're aware of, the first person experience that, you know, our waking selves are very familiar with, you know, directly talks to the stuff going on in the background, the, the subjective experience or the, you know, or what, in this case, what you're experiencing subconsciously when you dream. Let's go to question five, which is, uh, let me, let me preface this by, this is the question that I've been having the hardest time coming up with, like the right framing for, because it, it started because when I was talking to my students and I would ask them about their emotional processes and their emotional experiences, most of the time they would just use different emotion words to describe their emotions. And so I was trying to get a sense of like, okay, well, what's behind that? What is, what's really going on with this experience of emotion? So one way I asked this question, which is how, not what are you feeling? That's a hard one for people to answer. And so sometimes I just ask this as, um, what is it that's making you happy? Mm, mm, mm. Um, so if you want to take either one of those. A lot of my life has been built around what I call hobbies. Okay. And, and they're not what everyone thinks of as hobbies. Some of them are like, uh, some of them are playing games and entertaining and blah, 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 playing music. Mm-hmm. But some of them are, for me, are things like writing books and creating things. I really like to conceive of something, build it, polish it, and take it in. This is, you know, whether I'm writing a song or writing a chapter or something, that that gives me an enormous amount of pleasure and joy, at least most of the time. And then... As I said before, I'm extroverted. I'm social. I really like to get a group of friends together or maybe even just a friend and, uh, you know, have a nice bit of food and a nice cocktail and uh, not small talk. Uh, and I'm using those words deliberately. I, I, I don't enjoy surface level chit chat, mm-hmm. but I really like to take an idea that. Uh, you know, the people involved are really interested in and dig deep into it and see where it goes. What does that tell you about yourself then? I guess that, that would be my follow-up. So it connects to that thing about these ideas. And I guess your, your transcendent ideas edition, I think mm-hmm. um, like that's a big part of what works for me in terms of the hobbies. Like I think I'm a pretty competitive and ambitious person, mm-hmm. but the main person I'm competing against is myself. So um, I get an enormous amount of joy when I write a song that I'm never going to play for anybody, but yeah. I know it's good. Yeah. Like, oh, that's that's that really hits a spot for me. Are you still playing metal? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, well, it's kind of tricky. Um, for the last, I don't know, dozen years or something, I've been in a pretty successful soul revival band called The Congregation. Oh, wow. Some of the high points of that band where we opened for Wilco in one show and Flaming Lips, Garbage, Buddy Guy, Mavis Staples. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've done pretty well. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's done, very well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, never paid the bills, but that wasn't the point. Yeah, I, I've got yeah. a day job. I'm happy with it. Yeah. So that, that's been my music thing for a long time. Since the pandemic, that band's kind of slowed down. We play a little bit, but not that much. Yeah. So in its space, I actually put together a band of physicists at Fermilab 
just to play at the Fermilab user center bar. So, and we're, we are actually playing some metal among other things, Okay, but it's actually a really cool relief to be in a band where the, the ambitions are, are, are relatively low yeah. and we're, we just want to have fun and we're not trying to construct a big ambitious project, but just something that we're all going to enjoy and our friends are going to enjoy uh, that, that I'm getting a lot of pleasure out of that. All right. When we move to question six, which is who's writing your life story. When I have found myself most concerned with my life story was when I enjoyed life the least. Uh-huh. There were, there've been a couple of times where in my course of my physics research, I figured something out or discovered something or whatever that at least had the potential to be a big deal. And oftentimes, you, you know, so still a long shot, but like maybe this can be a big deal. And part of me and a lot of people around me would tell me you need to be concerned that you make sure you get the credit for that. The more I th- think that way, the less I enjoy life. Yeah. I wish I could have gone back and convinced my version of myself at those stage stages, like to, to not worry about that, take the credit that comes. And if you occasionally get, you know, overlooked, somebody else gets the credit, you know, beyond to the next thing and you'll be okay. I, I wish I had done more of that um, because I don't enjoy the politics of trying to manage one's story. Yeah. I enjoy the doing all the things that maybe somebody might write into a story someday, but if they don't get the story right, that's okay. You still did the things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a question really about ego construction and, you know, our egos are these characters yeah. that we, we, I mean, the other, the other thing I'll add is like by knowing myself better than I used to, I'm able to live in a way that makes me happier than mm-hmm. I used to. I used to do things all the time because I thought I should that, or I thought people ought to, that didn't make me happy. Yeah. I, I know more about myself now. And I can avoid some of those things, not all of them, of course, but some of those things. Where, where did those initial misimpressions come from? Have any sense? I think just trying to emulate people around me. You know, I, I looked at people who I respected and maybe admired, especially when I was younger and uh, saw like, oh, these people all do these things. Like, okay, I, you know, I, I'll give that a shot. I'll like, and and uh, when I didn't seem to enjoy it the way that they did, I thought I was doing it wrong or whatever. And it just turns out I'm not the same. So question seven, um, do you own your shit or does your shit own you? Well, I think there's a little bit of each. I mean, we live in a world, right? So let's define my shit as the biggest possible definition of that word. And like, it really matters that I live in a stable, peaceful, uh, safe place. Okay. So if, our government were to fall in civil war to ensue and whatever, like it would destroy my life. Okay. So anyone who's such a stoic that says, Oh, I don't need the stuff around me. Well, you do. You mm-hmm. do. Okay. Like, I mean, I, maybe some idealized version doesn't, but y- you probably do. So I'm not going to pretend that I'm immune to my environment. That being said, I'm, I think a lot less about my environment than a lot of people do. For one thing, I have a weird, perception disorder or something. I don't know if it's really disorder, but whatever, a quirk where I, I don't notice things around me. 
people have sometimes played jokes on me where like when I'm not in my office, they come and they put some big object in there that, that, um, isn't normally there. And I like a week passes and I'm not aware that it's there yet, unless it's physically preventing me from doing the thing I want to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my wife makes fun of me and she says, Oh, get something out of the closet. And I like go to the closet and I stare and I can't find it, whatever. And then she walks over and like, Oh, here it is. You know, I, all, all the time. So I think this helps me to not worry about some of the details of stuff around me. That being said, I get a lot of joy out of the, you know, my shit, right? I really like playing the guitars I own. And if I didn't have them, like, you know, I'd have less joy. And I, I could get another guitar, but whatever. But, like, though, I've grown to really like those. And um, I have a hobby of making craft cocktails in my kitchen. And I built up a big pile or, you know, half a room full of gear to do that. And yeah. if I didn't have that, it would, you know, I'd be a little less happy. I mean, I'd, I'd still find ways to entertain myself, but like stuff like that is, is valuable. Um, you know, and it, it really, it really does make my life more interesting. So, and I'm a materialist, so I'm okay with, you know, my happiness being partially contingent on the stuff around me. Yeah. I'm not trying to avoid that. I'm not trying to, you know, nullify, uh, materialist interactions with the world. The self-help stuff that a lot of people gravitate towards, I find to be frustrating. And I've very rarely found um, in the end for me to be better off for having embarked upon it. Uh, for people it works for, again, you know, yeah. Godspeed. Yeah. But um, but I pretty much just keep try. I just keep tr- keep my focus on stuff that I know makes me happy mm-hmm. and kind of to whatever extent I can get away with it, ignore all the other stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, this would kind of make me a, a bad roommate sometimes. Or I'm sure my <laughs> wife gets frustrated sometimes that, you know, I, I don't want to spend my time on the lawn or the garden or, you know, cleaning up or whatever. Like I, I don't want to get the oil change in my car. I don't want to, you know, I, I, I want to ignore all that stuff and spend as many waking hours I can on stuff that I like right now, but you know, I, I, I combine that with a basic sense of responsibility too, and try to not be too much of a jerk to the people around me. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads to question eight, which is how do you find love? Well, so I've been happily married now for, I think it's 13 years, 13 years. Dumb luck. I think is the answer <laughs> in my case. Um, I met my now wife on a internet dating site. This was before the apps, but it was, uh, the satirical newspaper, the onion. Yeah. Um, they had a, a, a dating site back in the day. Yeah. And, um, so that narrows it down. Like you don't, you find people with pretty good senses of humor and maybe political alignment yeah. on, on there. But, um, you know, I found her pretty quick from when I started going on there and, um, you know, I think if I did that experiment a hundred times, I'd be surprised if I would do as well again in those hundred times. I mean, it's just a really good match. Uh, She's, you know, my intellectual equal. She is, has a different personality from mine, which helps me to learn and, and, and uh, be challenged a lot. Um, A side effect of all that is uh, I kind of had a a instant family as a result. So she had an adoptive daughter Mm -hmm. who um, I got to know and kind of step into a 
uh, uh, parental role with, and she's great, and she's in her early 30s now with two daughters of her own, so I'm a grandfather now, yeah. and all that's pretty pretty wonderful, um, but it's not what I set out to do. I, I didn't imagine any of this was going to happen, so it wasn't out of planning or out of intention or anything like that. I went on a site to try to find somebody to go on a date with and wound up with a whole lot more, yeah. uh, something a whole lot better. Yeah. That's, that's, I'm curious, you know, there's, there's a lot in popular culture about the power of love or love energy. And I'm, I'm curious, given you think a lot about um, physics and everything like that, do you, does that ever influence or shape the way you understand love? I've never found that social phenomena, the metaphors people use between physical phenomena and social phenomena, I've never found to be very enlightening. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can find things that you can, you know, treat as analogies between these things, but I don't feel like by applying those analogies, I understand either side of it yeah. better than I did before. So I just have a totally different language for physics and for human beings. Yeah, I mean I could I could find all sorts of ways to use words like energy and force and you know whatever, you know any number of physics analogies to to talk about relationships. Um but I think it's more accurate and more illustrative to just say when I'm around this person, I'm happier than when I'm not. Yeah. And uh, at least averaged over time or something, you know, maybe not minute by minute, but like a year without her would be a lot worse than a year with her. You know, the the amount of joy and contentment and, and everything I get from that is enormous. Maybe I could say it gives me energy or something, but I don't know that I just said anything more than saying it brings me enormous joy and happiness. Yeah, I I was interviewing a, a sex therapist named Laura Berman, and she's written a bunch of popular books. And she has this book called Quantum Love, and she drew on quantum physics this idea that you know, uh, the kind of coincidence of kind of you know subatomic energies that are happening, you know, a la quantum physics can happen between people. And so I was just kind of curious if, um, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's a good metaphor for her. It works to what she's trying to say. I don't know if it's grounded in any kind of real science, but. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of quantum mechanics going on here, but, but okay. It, if that analogy, if that metaphor uh-huh. speaks to somebody and it helps them to, you know, feel the way they want to feel about something, I would say that if you're trying to like rigorously teach somebody or, or explain something probably invoking quantum mechanics in human behavior is, is not going to get you very far. Yeah. But if it's evocative in the way you want it to be, then by all means that that's what art is. That is what, you know, metaphor and simile is. So yeah. I'm all for that. Yeah. All right. Question nine, where are you going from here? I have no idea. And um, I take some comfort in that. I'm actually a little bit nervous by how relatively, similar my life is now to 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that's by far the longest that's happened for me. Yeah. Welcome, welcome to midlife. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is going to trigger some sort of major midlife crisis or something, but probably yeah. I'm just going to find new constructive ways to, you know, explore my interests and in, in this world. So for example, 
you know, I'm, I'm writing my first textbook now. So this is a new challenge for me. I'm just about to finish the first complete draft. Like that's something I've gotten great joy over the last couple of years doing, but I'm also consciously like thinking about well, what was my next new project going to be. And I have a few ideas. I mean, I've really enjoyed the podcasting. I've really enjoyed the writing, but I think I'm ready to tr- do something new, big and different when I'm not doing my core work of teaching and research and advising students and things. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what it is yet. And, um, but I'm pretty open-minded to thinking outside of the box on that. So I, I, I'm thinking a little bit about writing some fiction, which I've never done before. Uh-huh. I was thinking about new ways to communicate big ideas in physics to non-professional physicists. I was thinking about ways to interface with philosophy of science people in a way that I haven't had a chance to do before. So yeah, who knows? But I know I don't want to just keep doing the same stuff. Yeah. But I also don't, I probably don't want to like go and decide I'm suddenly going to be uh, something totally different that I don't have any skills built up uh, to, to uh, propel. Like I, I know that there are certain things I do well and I built these, the skill set. I have this nice box of tools, but I'm looking for new and very different ways to use those tools. Well, Thank you so much for taking the time. That's Come been on. great. I've really enjoyed this. Okay, great. If you feel like you're getting a lot out of our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Why This Universe. Why This Universe breaks down the biggest ideas in physics. Join theoretical physicist Dan Hooper and soon-to-be physicist Shalma Wegsman as they answer your questions about dark matter, black holes, quantum mechanics, and more on Why This Universe, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network.